Good morning, Aliso Creek Presbyterian. Uh, my name is Derek Rishmaui. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here this morning to hear God's Word read and uh, hopefully to preach God's Word. Uh, can you all hear me well? Okay, great. Um, I always have mic problems. It's either the mic, my beard, whatever it is, so I'm always a little nervous. Uh, but it's great to be here with you uh, to be able to share out of God's Word. As was already mentioned, I'm the RUF campus minister. Uh, at UC Irvine, and, and what RUF is, is is a campus ministry sent by the Presbyterian Church in America, and you all partner with me and support me and pray for me, and so just so you know, after the service, if you'd like to hear more about what we're doing, what's been happening, um, please find me afterwards. I'll be waiting around to take questions and just uh, share with you what's happening, but this morning, what we're doing in this time is looking at God's Word, and what we're actually doing is we're kicking off a new series. Uh, Aliso is kicking off a new series, as was already mentioned, Love from the Beginning, Shadows of the Cross in the Old Testament. As you've noticed, our text this morning came from Genesis 15. It was a long one, and, and what you have to understand is Genesis is the first book of the Bible, uh, the first book of several books in the Bible, 66 books in the Bible, and one of the things that can happen for us as we read the Bible as Christians, or maybe you're new to the Bible, you've, you've never read the Bible, you're not sure how it works. One of our prime convictions as Christians is that the Bible isn't just a collection of stories, a library, but it's actually one grand unified narrative. It's a whole that hangs together from beginning to end. And one of the ways that you know a story has coherence and consistency and, and narrative unity is, is the center and how much you can see that's coming. Like a good author will foreshadow what is to come. He will signpost. Uh, she will kind of let you know without being too heavy-handed. Uh, but but, but you, there's, there's a sense of the consistency between what has come before and what comes after and what happens right in the middle. And our conviction as Christians and what Aliso uh, wants you to see here is that the center of the Christian story, the life the death and the resurrection of Jesus is actually present on every page. It's the beating heartbeat of the whole scriptures, and it's the kind of thing that God, as an author, in a sense, can't keep himself back from telling you about from page one. And so that's the conviction that's going to ground the whole of the series, and we're going to kick it off today by looking at what is a very odd, very long, very quirky, uh, fascinating text in Genesis 15, right? We've already read it. It's a, it's a story of drama, pain, weird vision, smoke, fire, dead carcasses, a, a runway uh, of bodies, all sorts of things happening that are mysterious, that are initially opaque. But when we start to wrestle with them, when we start to see them, they actually drive home that central conviction that the cross is actually the hinge of the whole of human history and the whole of the narrative of the Bible, but it's also the hope of your whole life. And that's what I want us to, to focus in on today is, is what does it mean to hope in God? What does it mean to hope in his cross? What does it mean to hope in God as our shield? So the way I'm going to go about expounding this, because it's such a complicated text, is um, I'm going to try and just explain the narrative. And then from there, I'm going to camp out a little bit and make two or three points of application for us to chew on. I think that's it's, it's an it's a, it's unwieldy text otherwise, so that's what I want to do. But before I do any of those things... I'm going to need the Holy Spirit's help to do that well. And so I'd ask you to bow your heads and pray with me for the preaching of God's word. Father, you are good and holy and true. You're merciful. So merciful. 
And in your mercy, you do not leave us to grope about in the darkness trying to find truth. Rather, you shine a light, the light of your word in which we see our lives and the world clearly and truly and graciously. We ask you that in this moment, in this time, your spirit would shine that gracious light on our hearts and illumine the darkness. We pray all these things in the name of your son. Amen. All right, so walking through the story, let's begin at the beginning because that's the best way I know how. What happens? Uh, Well, it starts out, uh, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and says, fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So very clearly, Abram has a visionary experience of God. The word of the Lord comes to him, which is a stock phrase that gets used for the prophets all the time. So he says, the word of the Lord comes to him and he says, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. And this should rid him of his fear. Um, But two questions need to be answered before we go into those things. The question is, uh, after what things did this happen? (laughs) And why why might Abram be scared? Right? Why might Abram be scared? Why does he tell him not to, to fear not? Because Abram's encountered the Lord before. He knows who the Lord is. And so it's not just a generic, hey, don't be scared, I'm God. It's, it's, there is something motivating God's assurance in this text. So, so let's start to think, what, what, what happened before this? Well, for our purposes, uh, in a sense, the whole book of Genesis has happened before this, right? So just to, to set the stage, uh, the, story, the, the, the story of the Bible starts like this. There is one God who is perfect, exists perfectly, dwells in perfection, and decides to, out of that perfection, freely create a world that will reflect his perfection. And he creates creatures within it, Adam and Eve, the first humans, to dwell in relationship with him, to reflect him out in the world, reflect his perfect unity, his perfect glory, his perfect kindness, and they very quickly mess that up, and they sin, and they break covenant with him, they break fellowship with him, and they, in a sense, break the world open. Right? They're like the hinge of the whole world. And, and when that rupture, that relationship ruptures, everything starts to disintegrate and fall apart. But God in his goodness and perfection says that will, that will not do. I will actually rescue my creation. And so from the very beginning, he promises to put into place a long-range plan to draw all things back together again. And so he, he comes up with this ingenious plan that begins, he says the whole world fell apart when one man disobeyed, so I'm going to put the whole back world whole world back together through one man's obedience. And so what he does is he calls one man. He calls Abram. He says, Abram, uh, leave your family. Take Sarah, Sarah, your wife, but leave the rest of your family, your extended family. Follow me and go to to the land I'm going to tell you to go. And so what he does is I'm going to make of you a great nation, that kind of thing. So he says, so so Abram goes and does this. He leaves Ur the Chaldees and he goes to the land that God shows him. And along with him, he brings his nephew, his older um, adult nephew, Lot. And in this land, either before this land or in this land, they become very wealthy, very rich. And they have, they have cattle, they have uh, workers, they have whole households. So much that when they enter into a certain land, they start to actually crowd each other. And Lot's workers and Abram's workers start to fight. And so they divide. And says, you go live in that land, I'll go live in this land, you know, go in peace, etc. Now, Lot lives in a certain land, and he gets in trouble quickly, not in his own fault, but, but there's, a, there's a war breaks out. I'm giving you a lot, but this is, this is key to this. Um, a war breaks out between rival kings, really local chieftains, and Lot and his family get carried off. Well, Abram, this is my nephew, this is not going to happen, and so what he does, he, he saddles up, 
and he takes 300 of his household soldiers and he joins the kings and he rescues Lot. He rescues Lot and he rescues uh, a whole bunch of other people, uh, including the, the, the relatives and, and a lot of the, the goods of another couple of local kings. And this is all 13 to 14, Abraham, or Genesis 13 to 14. Um, in that chapter, the local kings say, hey, uh, I'd like to bless you, Abram. You've done me a great service. And Abram says, no, no, that's okay. Um, only God can say that he made me rich, so I'm not going to take anything off of you. And after this, Melchizedek, a local priest in the name of the Lord, blesses him. And, and this is kind of the context. This is, these, these, are the, these are the things that just happened. His rescue of Lot, his rejection of the blessing of the pagan kings, and his blessing by, by Melchizedek. And, and in comes this vision of the Lord. So with all that in mind, what is Abram scared of? Well, think about who Abram is at this point. He is rich. He has a household of at least 300 fighting men, which means there's elderly, there's children, there's serving women, there's cattle, there's flocks enough to feed all of this kind of work. This is, he's, he's, he's traveling with a small city. He has made it, right? He's wealthy. He's a player in the scene. He can, he can roll with the local kings. He has achieved status and wealth and power and authority. He, I mean, in Orange County terms... He's got the life. He's got the house you want. He's got the, he's got the profile, the CV, the, the, the resume, all of it. But so what's, what's missing? Well, his fear comes out in his question. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my household is Eliezer of Damascus. You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram cuts to the chase here. What good is all this if I don't have a son to pass it on to? Now, why is this a big deal? Well, there's the inherent pain. For those of you, those of us in the room who struggle with infertility, there's the inherent pain of simply not having a long-for child. And that must have weighed heavy on him for years, decades. But in the culture of his time and place, not to have heirs was not just emotionally painful at the, at the personal and private level, it was socially painful. It was a, a public symbol of potential curse. It was to be socially ostracized. It was to not have a future. Heirs and children meant that you, not having heirs and children meant that you didn't have someone in your old age to take care of you, to watch after you. It meant that there was you know, all this stuff that you worked to build, build up who are you passing it on to? What's it for? Right? This is something that I think many people at, at many times in their lives will, will, will wrestle with. What am I doing all this for if not to see the next generation, see the fruit of, of our love carry on what we've, what, we've, what we've built, our traditions, our, our, our wealth, our, our, our lives? And so this weighs on him. And all of this was made worse by God's promises and, and, and uh Lot's separation from Abram. See, God had promised that he was going to bless the world through Abram. So this, he, it's almost like the screw is twisted by the fact that God has promised him things that only make sense with heirs. And Lot leaving throws the plan into question even more. There's a reason he took Lot with him. Lot was the contingency plan. 
Lot is his, F, his nephew. Lot was his heir, the one who, stand, who stood to inherit it all. Essentially, you're, you're the CEO of a company and you've been raising up an executive to, who's going who's gonna, to, you, you've got a succession plan in place and then another country, or another company, maybe a country, uh, swipes them up and your, your succession plan to hand over the business when you, when you, when you retire is gone. And so it's all in question. So Lot casts everything into question. Their, their relational alienation uh, means God's promises seem shakier. Right, I've run my race, but I come to the finish line empty-handed with no one to pass the baton. Abram is at an existential choke point. His, his plans have fallen through. The big meaning that he had placed his hope in is gone. And he's asking, what have I done all of this for? And I think more than a few of us in this room have wrestled with that question at different times. Some of us wrestle with it in our 20s. Some of us wrestle it in our 40s. Some of us wrestle with it at retirement. Where, where is all this going? I had a plan for my life. I had, I had a meaning. I had a purpose. I had a child. I had a, I had a job. I had a career. I had, I had my health. I had, I had a game plan. And, and somewhere along the way, there was a wrench thrown in the gears of your life. And it's not moving anymore. It's not going in the right direction. And you are lost. You are adrift. What happens with Abram at this point? Well, God the Lord just straight up contradicts him. This is, this is a wonderful thing. And he promises him a great thing. He says, actually, no, you're wrong. Eliezer, your, your chief servant, will not be your heir, nor will Lot. Actually, even though you're old... Uh, you're going to have a kid, a son of your own, will be your heir. In fact, go outside. Right, they were inside apparently and just start this thing. Go outside. Look at the stars of the heaven. This is not local stars. This is like out Joshua Tree, no lights. No These are real stars. Okay, shiny ones. He says, go out and look at the stars in the heavens. As many as the stars are, so will be your offspring. And it's not just as many, but think of what the stars were. In the ancient world, the stars were thought of as the rulers of the heavens. They were the lords of the cosmos. Your children, Abram, will be many and they will rule. Kings will flow from your line. This is a big promise. And guess what? Abram just believes him. Abram just believes him. And this is counted to him as righteousness. And I wish I could preach a whole sermon there on justification, but I can't. You can, you can go bug Tom and Nick on it. But um, we'll put that to the side for now. But he believes him. Okay, but what happens next? Well, God sort of says, but wait, there's more. There's more. And he makes a second promise. And this one is not directly about his heirs, but it's about the inheritance, the land which his heirs will inhabit. Right? He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur to possess the land. To which Abram replies, O Lord God, how am, I know, how am I going to know that I'm going to possess it? Now, two quick points here. Notice first that Abram asks God how he can know right after God told him and God doesn't just slap him. This is an amazing grace. Right? God isn't too scared of your questions. And sometimes when God tells you amazing things, you believe them and then you can ask some questions about it. Right? Faith is not devoid of reason. Faith is not devoid of questions. Faith is not shut up and take it. Faith is, okay, cool. How? Sometimes it looks like that. Looks like Mary saying, 
Yes, also how shall this be? I've not been with a man. Explain that. Um, so so, so this, this is just, that was a side point. But, but notice God's response. He says, I, well, he, he instead goes into the rest of the passage. God actually takes time to assure him. This is amazing. And this is the, what, the event that, that flows next is, a, is an event of prophecy and covenant making. I said there was a lot, and this, is, this, is, this starts to get interesting and weird. Uh, God tells Abram, okay, you want to know? Here's what you got to do. Uh, grab a heifer, a female goat, a ram, uh, all three years old, and then a turtle dove, a young pigeon, and bring them. And so Abram goes and he says, okay, obviously I know what I'm doing. And he goes and he does this, right? He grabs all these weird animals and, and immediately and instinctively cuts them up and arranges them with a line down the center for a covenant-making ceremony, right? And then from there, birds of prey, vultures, come down and try and eat the carcasses, but Abram sticks around and drives them away. Okay, this is, this is the kind of the nuts and bolts of what's happening here. Then something weird happens. Another weird thing. A deep sleep falls on Abram. And then a great darkness. Now, when the text says a deep sleep and then a darkness, you've got really echoes of creation here. The last time a deep sleep fell on somebody, it was Adam, and he got a wife out of it. And it was right after creation, okay? And here, what we have here is a very deep, scary darkness and a deep sleep falling over man. And, and so you've got almost an act of new creation, new covenant, new Adam layers going on here. Something, something cosmic is about to happen, right? Now, out of this darkness... God speaks, and he begins to prophesy the future of Abram's descendants. He says, Abram, your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will serve and be afflicted for for four generations or 400 years. And after this time, their oppressors will be punished, and they will come out with great possessions. Then, when the wickedness of the Amorites, that is the representative nation of the Canaanites, the people whose land he had promised them, um, when that's complete, when they have wickedness, all of the wickedness that they could wicked, um, then I will come and judge them. And then your inhabitant, then your, 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 your children will inhabit the land and I will bring them in. Now he doesn't name Egypt, but he basically just tells the whole story of the book of Exodus right there in about two verses. Now the thing we have to see is that the covenant ceremony and the prophecy that Abram receives correspond to and reinforce each other. Right? And this is, this is where the symbolism of all the animals come in. If you pay attention to the animals that God tells Abraham, Abram to bring him, these are clean animals. Right? In the Old Testament, you have two categories. There's clean and unclean. There's, there's, there's clean, which is stuff that uh, the Israelites could eat and, and dwell with and, and sacrifice uh, to God, especially in the worship. And you can go look, about, look that up in Leviticus chapter 1 or even Noah's Ark. Fun fact, uh, all the other animals get two by two. The clean animals he takes seven pair in because they need more of them. So, so he takes these clean animals and he arranges them, right? But the reason the clean animals are significant is that they represent Israel themselves, right? So, so, so all of the animals represent different things. I'm getting all this from my buddy Alistair Roberts. He's a biblical scholar. If you, you can go look up his work, but it's really helpful here. But he says, notice that the heifer, not a female, a female cow, not the bull is offered up. In the law, the bull is offered on behalf of the high priest who represents the spiritual leadership. Also, it is a she-goat that is offered, not a he-goat, which represents the political leadership of, of Israel. A ram in the Old Testament is the basic offering representing the firstborn of all the common folk. And the doves and the pigeons are the offerings of the poor. Meanwhile, Leviticus 11 makes it clear that these unclean animals, the ones sweeping down to devour them, actually represent the surrounding nations. 
right? That's what the birds of prey represent in the text. So what we get is this picture of what's going to happen to Israel. Israel will be leaderless, full of slaves, the poor, without resources, and attacked by foreign nations who are represented by the unclean animals, the vultures who are sweeping down. And what Abraham does, Abram does, is what God himself will do. He drives away Israel's enemy in her darkest moment. And so the covenant preparation, the sacrificed animals are all a picture of Israel's future and the promise of what God is going to do for them. They are a sign of God's coming salvation. But that's not all they are. Not only are the animals a sign, they are a seal. Part of the covenant ceremony, which is maybe the most important part of it all, is the weirdness of the smoking fire pot. Did you miss that? Don't miss the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. What's going on with the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch? In a nutshell, God is a fire in Scripture. Your God is a consuming fire. God shows up to Moses in the burning bush as a flame. God in the throne in the temple is surrounded by flaming cherubim. Fire goes out from his throne. All over Scripture, the presence of fire means the presence of the Holy One of Israel. Now, what is, what's amazing about what the, what, the, what the fire pots do, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, is that they pass through the two halves, the runway of animals. This is remarkable, right? Because th- this is, put it this way, this is the most significant runway walk in all of human history. <laughs> to understand what's happening, though, you have to flip over to Gen- Jeremiah 34. You, you don't have to flip there. I'll read it for you. But, but this, is, this is how covenants get made. Covenants are not mere contracts. Covenants are legal, uh, personal relationships with promises and threats attached to them. And the most common relationship outside of a marriage relationship is that of a, of, a, of a servant pledging loyalty to a king, a lord and a servant. And that's what we read about in Jeremiah 34. That see, see, what happens is you've got consequences and blessings and an oath attached. In Jeremiah 34, God is con- condemning Israel for having violated the covenant. And here's what he says. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me I will make them like the calf they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. See, walking through the halves of the body is like signing on the dotted line, but more powerful. It's like saying, look, if I break these words, if I break my covenant right now, may it be done to me as has happened to these animals. May I be, may I be torn apart. May I be cut in two. May I be ripped to shreds. This is why making a covenant in Hebrew is actually, the, the language is cutting a covenant. Right? Now, what usually happened here was one of two things. The intuitive one is both of you walk through, right? Uh, you got two, it's a two-sided deal. I walk through, you walk through, we shake hands, and neither of us will break. The other thing that would happen is if you've got a Lord and a servant, you might just, the Lord might just say, okay, walk through so I can tr- take your word, right? You're swearing fealty to me, and so you walk through so you know what I will do to you if you break this. What happened here? What happened here? Only the Lord walked through. The fire passed through. Only the Lord said, this is on me. The covenant is on me. May I be torn in two. If all of the words that I've uttered to you, if the promises that I've made to you fall through, I am the Lord of the covenant 
and I will ensure it at the cost of myself. This is a great act of condescension and mercy and grace. Here we see God giving a visible witness to his servant, swearing by his own life the blessings, the astonishing blessings he has promised to him in terms of heir and the inheritance. And this is the story. So where does that leave us today? What should we take away from this foundational story in Israel's history and the history of the world? Because this is a story about the history of the world. And that's maybe the first point, right? At a sort of macro level, what we're thinking about here in the history of redemption, this story is foundational to almost everything that follows. Theologians will talk about the the history of salvation as one of covenants, made and covenants broken and covenants fulfilled, right? The first one, Adam, God and Adam made made a covenant in the garden. Adam broke that quick. And so God reinstituted another one called the covenant of grace. And what that is is a long unfolding plan with a lot of layers, which I'm not going to get into, but this is one of the foundational moments in it where God kicks things off with promise. The salvation of the people of God starts with God's promises and God's covenants and God's will, God's word. Right? And so the whole story of salvation is one of God making and keeping promises. Right, so you just put that in your back pocket. Is this is how the Bible works. But for us, second, and I think this is more of the more ex- existentially important one for, for a lot of us this morning, is um, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, God still does this. God is still the God who looks at you and calls you by name and says, fear not. I am your shield, and your reward will be very great. Fear not, Joe. Fear not, Jill. Fear not, Don. Fear not. Throw your name in. He's talking to you. He's talking to you. He's saying, I will be your shield and your reward. And what is it for God to be a shield? In the ancient world, a shield was your protection, your hope, your salvation, right? Israel sings that God is is their shield because he guards them in battle. He protects them against their fears. And so when God says, I will be your Lord, he's saying, I will be your protection. I will be the thing that you ought to hope in when it feels like everything is crumbling. Taking God as your shield means looking to him in faith. Now, what does that look like? Well, maybe you're like Abram and you have reached a choke point in your life. I don't know what it is. Life is so complicated and hard. It could be anything. Could be your job. Could be the economy dropping out in your sector. It could be, it could be divorce papers you never thought you were gonna see. It could be a diagnosis for a child you never wanted to hear. It could be a funeral you never thought you'd attend. It could be a future that is as dark as the great darkness and it feels like the vultures are sweeping in on you and you don't see it all. What is it? What does it look like? Taking God as your shield involves trusting him, placing faith in him when everything around you looks like it's gone to pieces. It means hearing, taking, taking hope 
in the fact that God looks at Abram and says, everything is darkness, everything's gone, but guess what? I will come through on my promises. I have great plans for you, heirs for you. Of course, none of this looks like anything you intended. It doesn't look like Lot. It doesn't look like you having kids at a reasonable age. It doesn't look like, it doesn't look like you're, 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 you're um, descendants inheriting the land within a few generations. No, it looks like slavery and oppression and, and long suffering and a bunch of weird left turns, but it is God keeping his promises nevertheless. Taking God as your shield means trusting him in the face of the, of the vultures sweeping down and remaining and hearing his word in the darkness and believing it. Having God as your shield and recognizing him as the source of your reward means trusting him no matter what else is going on. Which leads us to the question, how can you know? Where do we look to him? How do we see him as our great reward? By recognizing him as the same Lord of the covenant in the cross of Jesus Christ. See, usually when we go through trials and plans that don't work out, we have one of two responses. Right? We look at God and we say, why'd you break the deal? We blame him. This wasn't supposed to happen. This is not, how we, this is not what we discussed, Lord, in eternity. We accuse him. Or we blame ourselves. We think, how, what, what have I done to merit this? What did, how did I fail the covenant? Because I feel like I'm getting torn in two. And what we see here, what we see here, what we have to remember is that only God passed through the animals. Only God, which God means God committed himself unilaterally that nothing was going to get in the way of his ultimate blessing of Abraham and nothing is going to get in the way of his ultimate blessing of you, not your sins or your perception of his alleged sins. And the reason you can trust this is because of what we see in the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember who Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is, is eternity in time. Jesus is the infinite and the finite. Jesus is the unbreakable in the broken. And what he is, is the one who undergoes the covenant curses on our behalf. See, you and I and Abram and everybody who's lived after and who will live on into the future breaks the covenant just like Adam. Does not merit the blessing, does not deserve it. And yet on our behalf, in order to secure the blessing that God has promised to us and to Abram, God takes on himself the curse. He allows himself to be torn in two. What was done to the animals is done to him. On that day, the sky darkened, and he went down not into a sleep like death, but the sleep of death. He had nails driven in his hands, a sword pierced his side, and he was sundered in our place. For our sake. When you recognize this, that this was for you on your behalf, those other options don't make sense anymore. You can't actually believe them. You can't believe that a God who would do this in your place for your sake doesn't love you, doesn't have good plans for you, doesn't will. You're good because he has 
proven it by willing the greatest good, your relationship with him at the greatest cost, his own son. And you also know it's not because of your sins, because they were fully paid for in the covenant curses brought down on Jesus' head. And so whatever is going on, you can trust him. You can have this assurance. What's the assurance of the old, the old hymn? Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side, it, from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Jesus is the rock of ages for you. Which is why he can be your shield. And which is why he can be your great reward. That is why you know you can trust God. That is why you know you can love God. That is why you know God has loved you to the uttermost. This is not the kind of plan that you would have arranged for for yourself. This is not the kind of sovereignty. This is not the kind of love. This is not the kind of blessing you could have, you could have cooked up as the way God keeps his promises to you. And yet it is the one thing that you most needed. It is the one thing our lives depend on. Is this kind of grace, this kind of shield, this kind of great reward, a God who's a flame who, who walks through the carcasses on our behalf. And this is why, this is the foundation of why we do not have to fear anything that comes at us in this life. The rock of ages cleft for me. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father, you are, you are good and true. You are holy. You are merciful. You're the king who dies for his servants, who loves them to the uttermost, who saves them preserves them and gives them joy and peace and life eternal and a greater blessing they could have ever imagined for themselves. God, to you we turn. God, in you we hope. Be our peace. Be our hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.